Hello, and welcome to Season 4 of the E3 Podcast, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This season, we're going to talk about building science, female entrepreneurship, and the built environment. Prepare to get nerdy. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. So unfortunately, this month's guest uh, for July was unable to join me. Caroline B. on Around the Home with Eric G. and Caroline B. was supposed to be on in the month of July. She was sick, and unfortunately, she couldn't join me. So go and check out Caroline's website beforehand. She is America's healthy home expert. She's a home investigator, environmental consultant, spokesperson, and media personality promoting healthier homes throughout the United States. I'm hoping to catch up with her later this year so that we can get her back on the podcast so that she can tell you more about herself. Instead, today, I have a special treat for you that left me scrambling, but I thought, what would be fun? Uh, I joked with Travis that I would read a chapter from the Pretty Good House book, but I wanted to start with economics, and then I thought none of you would go out and buy the book if I started with the economics chapter. So instead, I'm just going to read you a couple of highlights from the book that I think are pretty cool. This week on Thursday, we're actually going to have a pretty good house book launch on BS and Beer. So join us live on Thursday night at 6 p.m. Eastern time. If you have a book and you've read it, come on, tell us what you think. We'd love to hear about it. For those of you who don't have your book yet, here is a special treat. First, in one of the first chapters of the book, we have How to Be a Pretty Good Client. The most important member of a pretty good house team is not the designer or builder, but the client, without whom there would be no project. That doesn't mean a client can or should run roughshod over the entire team member. In fact, on the best projects, there's a high degree of trust and respect among all parties. Builders and designers who have been in the trenches for decades can forget what it's like to not know much about design or building but they can also be stuck in their ways. While the client is the one who wants to push the envelope, how can you as a client be the most effective team member? Do your homework. As tired as that phrase is, it's accurate. Read contracts thoroughly, research different approaches, follow up on references, take your own notes during meetings, and follow through on your to-do items. While professional designers and builders will do their best to make the process clear and straightforward, there are thousands of decisions to be made along the way, and you have a responsibility to do your part. Two, vet your team. Have a good personality fit among team members is just as important or possibly more important than having the highest levels of intelligence, skills, or experience, though those are good to have as well. Take the time to interview a few designers and builders and think about who you want to spend the next year or two working with. The snazziest architect may be a terrible communicator. The most experienced builder may not be open to your pretty good house ideas. Three, understand that design process is not linear. As much as we'd like every project to follow a straightforward path, every custom home is a prototype. You're not buying a Ford pickup truck with a choice between a few options and colors. There are always surprises, even for the most experienced builders. There can be delays in the delivery of building materials, confusion about the ideal order of operations for assembling something, dimensions that aren't quite what they should be. What may seem like a mistake may simply be part of what it takes to build any custom home. If you choose pre-designed plans, you can read about that on pages 71 through 75, Much of the design end of the process will have been completed, but there will still be plenty of decisions to make. Number four, 
don't focus entirely on price. The designer or builder with the lowest rates may not have the skill or experience of the or most experienced designer may forget or not understand things and may be too busy to give you their full attention because their low rate keeps them up to their eyeballs in projects. That doesn't necessarily mean that the most expensive professional will be better to work with either. Just that how much someone charges shouldn't be the deciding factor on whether or not you hire him or her. Now we're going to move on to, uh, I wanted to throw in something for the economics chapter. So I'm going to tell you that at the end of each chapter, there's a section called things to consider. So the things to consider after you've read the economics chapter. Think long term. Don't build for your maximum needs. Smaller homes are easier to build, easier to maintain, and easier to age in. Think long term. Spending more up front can pay off sometimes very quickly. Think long term. We need to think about both energy efficiency and resource efficiency. Spend our carbon account very cautiously. Think long term. The climate is changing. Can your house function under changing conditions? And remember, renovating an existing house is almost always cheaper than building new. Now, in the design chapter, and a lot of these things relate back to economics, there's one called average home sizes are growing. In 1975, the average American single-family home was 1,660 square feet. Now, new houses measure about 2,500 square feet. As the size of the average household has shrunk since 1975, this doesn't seem to make much sense. But you don't have to look very far for two big reasons. The concentration of wealth in the United States and the deeply entrenched car culture, which means that cheaper land outside city centers is easily accessible. Other factors are the American consumer culture and marketing designed to persuade prospective buyers that 2,500 square feet and luxury features like opulent marble bathrooms are must-haves. Unfortunately, the current appraisal and real estate markets seem to place a premium on these eye candy elements instead of solar panels, better insulation, and improved interior air quality. So, fancy features and size, regardless of our true needs, too often win out over pocketbooks, comfort, and the health of the occupants. And even if you are able to hire a qualified builder, designer, or architect, you can't assume that you will get a house that runs on renewable energy, is well insulated, and has efficient mechanical systems. Alas, this is rarely the case, which is all the more reason for homeowners to choose their team wisely and be clear about what they want. This one I'm going to talk about this next piece because uh, Flashing Day, International Flashing Day, which was started by Aaron Jones with Big Dog Construction, is coming up here at the end of August. So if you're a builder or architect listening to the podcast, make sure you post a flashing detail on August 26th. Um, if you haven't had a chance yet to get your shirt from Aaron, reach out to him um, and highlight that. But in this chapter, we're going to talk about windows and doors, and this subpart is flash your windows and doors properly. Installing windows and doors is not as simple as it used to be. We are primarily interested in keeping rain and wind out, as we always have been, so we use tapes and flashing to direct storm water away from our building. 
we also know that enough windows and doors will eventually fail at the sill, often resulting in significant moisture-related damage, which means that it's good insurance to install sill pans. Sill pans can be made of various materials, but we prefer flexible membranes because they don't conduct heat like metal pans, and they aren't as bulky as plastic pans, though those also work. The idea is to plan for the day when a window or door leaks, usually through the joint in the frame and allow any water to drain away safely. Framing in slope or using a shim to create one or including a vertical back dam are important if the pan is to do its job. You might be surprised how many get installed flat without a slope or a back dam. And last, I'm gonna leave you with this little part, which is, designing and commissioning your mechanical systems. And part of why I'm doing this is because I've been writing about mechanical systems all day and because I think designing and commissioning mechanical systems is something that we don't talk about nearly as much. So, for the most part, a pretty good house seeks to simplify high-performance building by providing rules of thumb and guidelines. When it comes to heating and cooling system, however, rules of thumbs don't work very well. Some form of energy modeling is necessary, Building codes usually require ASHRAE Manual J calculations to determine room-by-room room heat loss. The results can be accurate, but the calculations are often fudged to make things easier for a supplier or contractor. Oversizing equipment is often not desirable, as heat pumps work most efficiently near their maximum capacity and their efficiencies drop off dramatically if oversized. Oversized air conditioning can't dehumidify the air effectively. No matter which system you choose to heat, cool, or ventilate, designing the system carefully is critical. If you have enough heat capacity to meet the absolute coldest temperature you'll never hit, which might be only 15 hours per day, your system will be oversized for the other 364 days and 9 hours. Instead, we use what's called a design temperature. It's typically a temperature linked to a percentage of the year on which it will occur. For example, the ASHRAE manual lists Portland, Maine's design temperature for heating as negative 1.7 degrees Fahrenheit, 99.6%, and 3.2 degrees Fahrenheit and 99.6. This means that on average, the temperature is above negative 1.7 degrees Fahrenheit 99.6% of the year and above 3.2 degrees Fahrenheit 99% of the year. Some charts will also include the number for 98%. For cooling, our numbers are 86.7 degrees Fahrenheit at 0.4% and 83.3% Fahrenheit at 1%, meaning, again, that the temperatures are above these temperatures for those percentage of the year. At the opposite end of the design is making sure your system is performing as designed. Are the heat pumps running at an expected rate? Is the ventilation moving at the expected amount of air? Is this step often overlooked but critical, especially in a high-performance home, where efficiencies can easily be lost due to poorly functioning equipment? We cover what is involved in detail in Chapter 10 on verification and client education. Verifying that equipment is operating as designed is called commissioning, which can be done by contractors who installed the equipment, the manufacturer, or a third-party auditor but it is critical that it be done and the result recorded. It is a good time as well to make sure that the homeowner understands things like the maintenance schedules, filter replacement or cleaning, and who to call for servicing or repairs. 
Make sure you have a plan for commissioning before contracting for the work to be done. If this dollar isn't planning on doing it, tell them you are planning on it, and they will need to make corrections if the equipment isn't performing to spec. Those are just a few of the snippets. Those aren't any of the chapter dialogue, but just sidebars that are part of the book. And I thought I'd mention that, have you guys join us on Thursday night to talk about the book. And if you haven't heard about it, the Pretty Good House book is now available. You can buy it online at Taunton Press, at Amazon, at a lot of local booksellers. And we hope that you'll join us and enjoy the book and let us know what you think.